if if you have uh, uh, your Bible with you, if you uh, could turn to Joshua, again, chapter 24, and I would like to read verses 14 and 15 again because that's where we're going to be for uh, for this Sunday sermon. Joshua 24, uh, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You bow with me, and let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've left it to instruct us through which you speak to our hearts and to our souls. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds to understand these truths in a way that can be applied. And we do pray that these words would be engraved in our hearts, that uh, we would live in accordance to it, that we would honor you. And we pray for this next hour that our minds and our hearts would be attentive to all that you have to say. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, August of 2007 remains, for me, a hallmark month for this very reason. And uh, it's a reason that I don't think many of you know. But it was in August of 2007 when I formally, officially became an American citizen. And so that's the date that I think about on every 4th of July weekend, which uh, is a little bit strange because I have lived in the United States for the majority of my life. Uh, In fact, for 80% of the years that I've been alive, I've been in the United States. And not only that, uh, I'm convinced that the place that I grew up in in the United States is the pinnacle of American society where you have uh, up-to-date technology and multicultural a multicultural society combined with natural paradise and landscaping, which is also known as the state of Hawaii, which is where I grew up. And, uh, and I also lived in the, uh, for, for high school, the, the spot for tourism of the United States, and that's this place called Las Vegas. Yeah. So <laughs> I've spent most of my years in the United States. I still, to this reason, don't know why our parents didn't petition us for citizenship for the longest time that we were here. So I became a citizen when I was an adult. And I remember that ceremony because I was with my sister and my mom. We all became citizens in the same day. And it was in, it was in Nevada because that was where my residency was at the time. And in the ceremony, uh, it included three mini speeches. We're talking uh, one to two minute speeches by uh, a citizen, a new citizen from that class, and it was on a volunteer basis, and you signed up to do it uh, that morning. And so my mom, uh, as we walked in, said, hey, uh, you should do it. And before I could even answer, she signed my name up on, on the list, and there I was. So I was there as a guest speaker at um, at the, the Las Vegas court and my citizenship ceremony because she said, well, you're a preacher, so you might as well just speak. And so I said, all right, I'll do it. And so I went up and um, and shared, and the speech was supposed to be, the, this two, three-minute speech was supposed to be about what being an American citizen 
means to me. And I'm thinking, well, I've only been one for about 30 minutes, so I'm not sure. But this is what I think it will mean for me. And I said that. So I got up and said that being an American citizen, uh, what that means to me is that I have freedom. I have the freedom in particular uh, to pursue uh, vocational service to my Lord Jesus Christ without persecution. And in fact, I can not only go to church and serve Christ in my local church without worrying about what's going to happen when I walk outside the doors and whether or not I'm going to be arrested, but I can pursue uh, a career in vocational Christian ministry and get a degree for it. And I can also uh, get an education. And it be considered, again, a formal degree. And so there's, there's this freedom that I have to, uh, to live for the Lord that I wouldn't have in another country. And so when I think of this 4th of July weekend, that's what really comes to mind because this was uh, the date of the Declaration of Independence, right? And it's one of the foundational pillars of American philosophy because what does make America distinct from so many other nations is our commitment, not just as a nation, but as, as people to personal independence and freedom. It's the pursuit of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I say that not in a negative sense. I know a lot of times when we talk about those things in, in the church, we'll sometimes talk about it in this health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And I don't, I don't mean it in that way. Uh, in this country, we do have uh, the ability to pursue life as we want to. And, and we have liberty to make choices. To We have freedom of speech freedom of education and the pursuit of happiness that we wouldn't have in other countries. And it is a positive thing. And just like any other country or culture, with the church now building itself uh, with a, an American contingency, there are things that American Christians apply better with regards to Christ's commands and Christ's instructions than people from other countries do, including the country of the country where I was born. And on the flip side, there are things that American Christians have a more difficult time inherently, subjectively understanding than Christians from other countries. And so one of the things that I really do believe is manifested in the American church more so than in other countries is the reality of the fellowship of the body of Christ without division. We can come to church from whatever socioeconomic background. We see this in GBF. No matter where you're from, no matter what gender, uh, no matter what your educational upbringing, we can come here, we can fellowship. And, and there's, no, there's no favoritism. And, and that's such a wonderful thing to pursue because in other countries, including the one where I'm from, there was a class system. Even though it was unwritten, there was a class system. Certain people sit in the front, certain people sit in the back. And that's just, that's just the reality right now of how things are. It's wonderful here in the United States where we don't, we don't have to think about that. On the flip side, and this relates to the verse that we're at, one of the things that I've realized, and I say this as, as an American, as someone who's grown up here, and comparing myself to people in, in, other countries where I have done some missions work. One of the things that we do have difficulty understanding in a subjective sense is the concept of being a servant. And the reason is, is because we value personal independence so much. We value being a, a democracy so much to the point where we forget that as believers, we're really part of a theocracy. 
God is still Lord. God still reigns. And we're still servants of God. And there is a tendency more so with us to ask the Lord to bless our desires, uh, to bless our ambitions, uh, to make us successful. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is flourishing in this country more than it is in any other because we generally speaking we value success and safety sometimes more than we do obedience to the lord we're a country where we do not like as people to be told what to do giving up the pursuit of personal happiness and personal achievement for the sake of the welfare of those around us is becoming harder and harder and particularly in this region we as sometimes as a church, are more keen about doing things in our own terms. We'll go to church, we'll go to the local church that we like. We have the freedom here because there are so many local churches. We don't have just one. We have so many that we can we can kind of pick and choose. We go to church that we find is the best fit for us. We serve in the area of those churches that we find most passionate for us, that fits our personal desires. We attend the small group that we like, that we feel most comfortable in. We'll go to the church whose schedule is best fitting with our personal schedule. And Christianity is less about the pursuit of servanthood and more about the pursuit of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And in in that sphere, I think many of us have forgotten really what it means to serve the Lord And so the question is that you really have to ask yourself when you walk away from this morning is, are you in your household currently serving the Lord? And I don't just mean activities. A lot of times when we think about service, and if you have become a member of GBF, one of the things we'll ask you is, you know, where would you like to serve? And and that's obviously a good question. We would like you to serve in certain places. But a lot of times when we think of service, we think of activities. And we think of brand names. You know, am I a preacher? Am I a teacher? Do I work in the sound booth? Do I work in the nursery? Do I pass out white cards? Am I an usher? Am I a deacon? Uh, do I help with teardown? Do I lead a Bible study? That's when we think about serving, is what are we doing? Service to the Lord, as you see in the scriptures, is not about mere activities. It's about a philosophy. It's about an attitude. And it's particularly related to you as you worship God. And so it is possible as a churchgoer, to be very, very busy with church ministry, to be everywhere in the church all the time and really not be serving the Lord because in your heart, you don't really see yourself as a servant. You're at the center of everything. So again, the question is, not so much are you busy for the Lord, but are you serving the Lord? Is your household serving the Lord? Or do you consider yourself as an independent being before him? When we look at this book, and we look at this verse in particular, 14 and 15, that last part of 15, which you'll see as as a plaque on so many different Christian households, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was the first verse that I had my my child memorized. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We even have a we even have a video of him memorizing that verse because it's it's such a key concept. But in this book, Obviously, Joshua is more than one verse. It's it's 24 chapters, and it is one of the most 
inspiring and encouraging books in all of the Bible. And so if you're having trouble with life, if you're worried about things, if you're anxious and you're not sure that God is going to come through, well, spend about a year studying this book and read it over and over again. And I guarantee you, as long as you really are a believer, that your mindset is going to change because you have a demonstration here of the power and the faithfulness of God. In Genesis, God said, I will give you the land. And it took a few hundred years, but guess what happens in the book of Joshua? Even when the odds were against them, God gave them the land. He showed his power. He demonstrated his faithfulness. And, you know, this book was written, obviously, uh, a few uh, several decades later, and pe- Jewish people who were reading this book would think, remember what God did for us. And if there is ever any doubt that the Lord is powerful, that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises to his people, read this book. And back then they didn't have chapters. They just had a scroll. <laughs> read the entire scroll. And so in the first 12 chapters, here's the breakdown of Joshua. Chapters 1 through 12, it's the conquest of the land. Joshua and his army conquered the land, starting with Jericho, with the walls falling down. And then in 13 to 24, you have the division of the land. And so here we are in, in chapter 24 now. At this point, when Joshua gives this charge to Israel, the nation was in a state of national security, much like uh, maybe not exactly as we are today, but that, you know, they didn't have nations invading them. God had given them peace from all of their enemies. And so they are in the best years of their history as a nation. Joshua at this point was advanced in his years. He was approaching his death and God blessed him with a long, prosperous life and much success in all those battles. Uh, he wasn't killed. The Lord was fighting on his side. And so at this point, Israel is now organized into her tribes. The land is divided. The nation is safe. All the nations, the surrounding nations, are looking at Israel with fear. And Joshua gathers all of Israel and their leaders. He reminds them of their success that God has granted them. In 23 verse 10, he reminds them that it was God who fought for them. And then in 23 verse 6, turn there for a second, he says, Be very firm. After all the success that you've had, be very firm to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. God had told Joshua that earlier before he started his military campaign. And now Joshua is telling exactly what God told him to the people. He reminds them in verse 11 to take diligent heed to yourselves, to love the Lord your God. He reminds them to love God always, to stay faithful to his word. And he warns them against the association with pagan nations, verses 12 and 13. If you ever go back, I'm reading verse 12, and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And then in chapter 24, he gathers them again for the second time. He remind, And this time, 
He rehearses to Israel their whole history. He reminds them of the Exodus. Remember how before Egypt, you were oppressed, you were slaves, but God heard your cry and he delivered you and he destroyed Egypt in the Red Sea. In other words, you were powerless, but God freed you from one of the most powerful nations at that time. And then he reminds them of their time in the wilderness. This is basically the book of Numbers. Remember how you were nomads. You did not have a land of your own. And yet even then, even when, even when Balaam tried to get, or Bala, uh, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse you, God caused them to bless you. You were nomads. And even though people tried to conquer you, God preserved you when you didn't have a land of your own. God gave the enemies into your hands. Remember now, Joshua, the conquest of the promised land, how you crossed over, how the walls of Jericho fell when you didn't touch them. And you conquered the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hissites and all the ites and ites and ites. God gave every single one of these people into your hands. So in other words, Israel, before Joshua says what he does in verses 14 and 15, he says this, Israel, God's people, remember who has been orchestrating your entire history as a people all along. Everything that you have, everything who you are, every victory that you've accomplished, God is responsible. Who you are, what you have, and where you are going is because God's hand has actively been working on your behalf. All that you have, and this is true today for every believer, all that you have, God has given you. And all that you have, God can just as easily take away. Therefore, here's the main point of this verse and of this message is diligently, carefully, fervently commit yourself and your household to serving the Lord, not just working for the Lord, but serving the Lord because your surrounding culture, no matter where you are, no matter what city you're in, is flowing in an opposite current of idolatry. That's the reality of where we are. And so you as a believer, we as a church, have to commit our hearts, diligently seek to serve the Lord. And so seven times, I mean, what, look at these two verses. Seven times you see the word serve. It's the Hebrew word obed, ebed, where you get the name obadiah, right? Servant of the Lord. Um, and here's, when you look at that word, what, so what does it mean to serve the Lord? That's obviously the main point here. What does it mean to serve the Lord? And how is that different from just working? For instance, when I go for a run, I work, and I'm working hard. It's causing me to sweat. My heart is about to explode. I am working, but I am not serving anybody except for myself. When I study, when I go to school, I work. I perspire internally, at least. I punch my computer sometimes because I'm so frustrated at all the assignments. But who's it for? A lot of times it's for me. A servant in a household. And this is why it's difficult for us to understand this concept sometimes. Because in, in 
in our household today, we generally don't have servants. But in a household, the servant, the obed, the ebed, was the person who lived under the will of a master or mistress. He worked. Everybody in the household worked. Mother, father, children, servants, they all worked. But the servant in particular had to relinquish all of his ambitions, all of his will for the furtherance of the work of another person, namely his master. That's what it meant to serve. It doesn't just mean to work or to labor, although it includes that. And so in the Old Testament and the New Testament language, the word for serve implies the concept of submission, the relinquishing of your will. It implies that you have recognized in your life the presence of a master, the presence of a superior, the presence of a Lord. We have different names for God that we attribute to him. We call him Father. We call him Savior. He is Father because he treats us as his children. Savior because he saved us. He is also our Lord, which means he owns us. And as a human being, I want you to think about this first. You will inevitably worship and serve someone or something. It's embedded in your DNA. You are made in the image of God. You are created with a soul that instinctively, just as a baby instinctively knows how to cry, your soul instinctively knows how to and will worship and serve someone. The question is, who or what are you serving? And really the question is, are you serving the Lord or are you serving the gods that whatever society you're in is worshiping? It's innate. It's built in you. And you see that in the book of Genesis. As soon as the nations disperse, what do they all start doing? They all start worshiping. And God calls out one nation, namely Israel, to be the example to be the people that unlike all the other nations back then and today worships the Lord and him only. And so serve the Lord and there are three necessities, three principal necessities that that come with it. And here's your outline for today, these, these three things. Number one, and they're from 14 and 15. Number one, serve the Lord, serve God uprightly. Serve God uprightly. Look at chapter, look at verse 14. Now, therefore, okay, in other words, Israel, for hundreds of years, you were oppressed. Finally, you've conquered the nations. Now, therefore, in other words, not later on, you don't have time to get settled as a nation. Now, in your current state of power, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth to fear to fear is the response that a man or a woman has when he or she realizes that he or she is in the presence of a being who is far superior than he is in power in ability in essence it's the it's basically you know what it feels like it's the response that your heart has when you're confronted with someone who you know is greater than you. To fear the Lord means that you have an exalted view 
of God. You exalt God in your heart. And then that's why in the Bible, in the New Testament, especially fear in the Gospels is coupled with amazement. You can't fear the Lord if you're not astounded by him. And it's coupled with submission and obedience, like in Ecclesiastes, where it says, fear the Lord and obey his commandments. You can't say you fear someone unless you listen to him. And if you want to know how far our nation has gone in this regard, there was a, when I taught at a Christian school, um, there was a girl in our, in my class, a real nice girl who flat out said, because the conversation of fearing God came up in, in the class that we were in, she flat out said, why do we have to fear God? We shouldn't have to fear God. Where in the Bible did God ever say to fear us? She was raised in the church. Um, she had, I think, uncles or, or grandparents in her family who were pastors. And here she is asking me, and I was just about to get a heart attack. And as a teacher, you have to pretend like it's totally normal to hear that. She actually asked, where in the Bible does it say to fear the Lord? And one of the students who was right next to her says, haven't you ever heard people say, I'm a God-fearing Christian? And she said, I've never heard that, at least not in California. But that's how far we've gone. In other words, there are a lot of churches around you that do not teach the principle of fearing the Lord. Fear the Lord. Israel, serve him only. In other words, God is not calling you to worry about your national security. Which would have been a temptation if you think about it. Because once you're a nation of power, guess what happens? You're also a nation with a bullseye on you. The surrounding nations are now looking to overcome Israel. And here would have been the easy thing for Israel to do. Well, if we're the nation of power, and by the way, she did do this. And if we want to preserve our security, the security of our people, maybe we can form some alliances with these nations. And if we form alliances for the sake of PR, maybe we can adopt some portions of their lifestyle. But God says, it doesn't matter how many people are nipping at your heels. Do not fear the surrounding nations. Focus on me. Serve me. Be in awe of me. Serve him. Yes, you've conquered all the nations, but you still have to serve the Lord. You may be in a position of power, Israel, but you are not autonomous. In sincerity and truth. Sincerity implies integrity. It's the Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus to talk about a sacrifice that was wholesome with no defect. Every part of it was sound. In other words, Israel, and every part of your life, from your family life to your ceremonial worship life to your relationships to your work serve the lord with wholeness and in truth in faithfulness in accordance to his word in other words in your heart serve him and in your actions serve him in such a way that he designed not on your terms on his terms be very firm to keep all that is written in the book of the law of moses do not turn aside from it left or right Israel fell away from that later on in the book of Malachi. Malachi calls out the nation of Judah for unwholesome worship. You're sacrificing in the temple, and yet you're divorcing your wives at the same time. Can't do that. So here's the implication for us. 
And here's the test. If you want to know if you are really serving God uprightly, take a look at your heart and ask yourself this question. Do you really think of God as awesome? I don't mean awesome in the way we use it. We see anything that's cool and we think awesome, right? You see a little dog walking by that's cute. Ooh, that's awesome, right? Usain Bolt is awesome. Everything is awesome. The preacher is almost awesome, right? No, no, no. What I mean is when you think about the Lord, does your heart bow inside? And only you know if that's going on. Because if that's not happening, then what's flowing out of your life may be work, but it's not service because there's a relationship between the two. That is what it means to serve the Lord in sincerity. We fear, and personally, uh, I have a tendency to fear a lot of what's going on. There are so many things going on in, in the country right now, in the world right now. Just turn on the news. There's a reason why people who read the news tend to be stressed out because all they focus on is what's, what's happening that's wrong. You know, every once in a while, my wife will say, hey, did you hear the news? So-and-so just died. Did you hear the news? There was an attack here. There was an attack there. And I finally said, did you look outside? There are two squirrels eating their corn nuts, and they're just fine. I personally, when that first major ISIS attack happened, grew really fearful. When the SCOTUS decision happened, internally, it was just, it was tough to, it was tough to go to sleep thinking, well, what's, I'm a vocational minister. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? You can't help but think that World War III is approaching. But remember, there is still someone who is in the heavens who does as he pleases. Fear him and serve him in sincerity and truth. And so the less important question is not where are you serving in the church? It's are you a servant? Not just are you a laborer, not just are you a worker, not just are you busy, but are you a servant? Have you relinquished your will to the direction and to the work of someone else, namely the Lord? Which means you can't be the type of person that says, I will do what I want to do and I will go where I want to go and I will live where I want to live and I will do what my fam- with my family what I want to do because it's not up to you if you're a believer. It's not up to me either, but it's not up to you. It's up to the Lord who owns everyone. The earth is the Lord and everyone and everything in it. And so the other implication of that is that, and think about this one, can you really call yourself a servant if you are consumed with achieving power and status? Because servants don't do that. It doesn't mean that you can't have a lot of money. You know, Abraham did, Job did, David and Solomon did, right? But if in your heart, what you're aiming for in life is power and status to be promoted and exalted above people, you have to ask yourself, are you a servant? Whether or not you are a servant is going to show itself in how you treat this book. 
there's a good chance if the only time you open this is on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, that maybe you're not. Because for someone who does not want to diverge from this to the right or to the left, you are going to spend some time reading it. You are going to spend some time thinking about it. Not just arguing from it. Not just debating with it. Not just studying it for the sake of winning you know, some political conversation. But studying it to make sure that in your life you do not diverge from God's commandments to the right or to the left. And after you've read it, you internalize it, you keep it in your heart because you do not want to sin against the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes? Serve the Lord uprightly. Number two, serve the Lord exclusively. Second half of 14, he says, put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Put away. In other words, don't just focus on what you're doing. Focus on what you're putting away. Yes, Israel, you are freed from political oppression, but the reality is you came from Egypt. You have pagan influences embedded in your culture, whether you know it or not. And you know where it showed itself? When you... um we're at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses was there and you couldn't function. So what did you do? You built a golden calf, just like the Egyptians would have done. That's how far you were before. You still have pagan influences in you. And so he says, put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And then he says, this is really interesting. He says, if it is disagreeable in your eyes, in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you'll serve. In other words, Israel, I've given you the charge. If you don't want to serve God, that's between you and him. Joshua knows that Israel would have a tendency to come up with excuses. He was there. He was in the wilderness. He was with Moses when Israel complained and bickered and grumbled from having to follow God when he didn't immediately grant whatever request that they wanted. And he saw that for decades. And so Joshua says, if you have a problem serving God, in other words, if you feel like it's inconvenient, if you feel like it's too difficult, if you feel like you're too busy, if it's disagreeable in your sight, translation, if it's unpleasurable to serve the Lord, then choose. You choose for yourself. It's up to you. The burden is on you. Joshua knows that he has a limited jurisdiction. He was a military leader. Um, he was not specifically ordained as a Levitical priest. He's not going to micromanage the country. So he says, choose. And then he says, whether the gods in which your father served, which were beyond the river, in other words, you have a past baggage of idolatry that if you're not careful, you could go back to. And then he says, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. In other words, Israel, you are, you not only have a baggage of idolatry that you came from, you have a present culture of idolatry that you're immersed in. So both from your past and both from your present, you're going to be tugged away. And so you choose who you will worship as a believer is your choice. 
A pastor comes here and, and gives you the word of God and shows you what it means to worship God and points you. A parent will raise up his children in the discipline and instruction of God, but no one ultimately can coerce you. We tell this to parents all the time with their children. What they do with their life is really their choice, your kids. They are going to do ultimately what they want to do because God gave us in that sense that liberty to choose. As a believer, every one of us either has a past upbringing of idolatry, if he did not grow up in a Christian home, a present environment of idolatry where we live in, or both. So you're really on the cusp of worshiping idols wherever you go. Now, this I have to say because in the United States, we have more freedom to pursue Christianity than, than probably any, any other nation has and in the history of the world. Today, there is no such thing as a Christian nation or a Christian city. There is no center of Christianity. There's no capital. There's no Jerusalem today in, in the figurative sense. There is a, there is a physical Jerusalem. It's in Israel. Um, but there's no capital of Christianity like there was back then. In Genesis 11, when God caused the tongues uh, to speak different dialects and the nations dispersed and they scattered all over the earth, every single nation started to worship other gods and God singled out Israel to be the one that was supposed to worship him. And currently, uh, as you see in Romans 9 through 11, Israel is in a state of rebellion and rejection so that the gospel, the light, could go out to the Gentiles, which means what? That the United States, as much freedom as we have here, has not taken the place of Israel as God's chosen nation. And a lot of times we speak that way. Just like God judged Israel, God will judge us. Well, yes and no. God judges people, but we haven't taken Israel's place. We're not the center of Christianity, even though we have so many churches here, even though this is the place where Christian seminaries and Christian universities and Christian high schools are getting the most money and are able to flourish. There are countries that are still sending missions teams to the United States. Why? Because at the heart of it, from a big picture perspective, the system in which we live in, in the United States and in Silicon Valley, is still a non-Christian system. Which means we live in a culture of idolatry, whether we like it or not, and that is straight from the Bible. You see that. You see that in Second Timothy 4, Paul says, the days will come. The last days will come. And there's no clause there for except one nation called America where people, for the majority of it, will worship you. We are, by nature, by, by just the history of, of what the Bible has shown, a non-Christian nation. We live in a non-Christian city. God is not the center of Silicon Valley's worship life. And unless you are aware of that, as a citizen of this country and as a resident of this city, 
unless you are aware of that, you will fall into it. And so if your coworkers and, and the people who are around you who are not who are not believers are looking at you and thinking, you're just like us, then something's wrong. And you're thinking, well, I work, we don't worship statues. There's no Google statue, or maybe there is a Google statue now. They keep building things on that campus, right? But idolatry may not uh, manifest itself in a, as physical a form as it may does in other countries, but according to Colossians 3.5, Idolatry doesn't have to be in the form of a physical statue. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Greed, the love for money, the love for riches, the love for material wealth, the love for power. That's the idol of America. When I first started working at uh, the Christian school that I worked at when I was in between churches, in between ministries. It was interesting to hear the kind of questions that I was receiving afterwards, family and friends. Everyone kept asking me, so are you going to stay at that school or are you going to move to a bigger one where you're going to have better opportunities? Are you going to stay at this one or are you going to go to another one where you're going to get more money potentially? That's more prestigious. Those are the only questions I ever got asked. Not one person, not one person ever asked me. Are the kids in the school benefiting from your service? Except the principal, because I had to check in with her. But outside of that, not one person asked me if the people I was serving were benefiting from my work. Because that's the philosophy here, right? You achieve, you achieve, you achieve, you amass, you amass, you amass. We're more concerned about the status, the reputation, getting promotions, getting ahead, than we are really about seeking the welfare of the city that we're in, like God told the Jews when they were in Babylon. We've forgotten that we work for the Lord. We don't work for us. We don't work to promote us. We don't work to get some kind of a reputation. We work to first provide for your family and second to seek the welfare of the city, of the people that you live in. But we've forgotten that and we're more concerned now with skill and with success than with actual service. Families now today, Christian families now, if you really get to the heart of it, many of them are more concerned about where their kids are going to go to college than whether or not their kids are going to be involved in church later on in life. And I love college. I went to college. But when that starts to take the place of the priority of God's lordship in your life, then something's wrong. So what does it practically mean to serve the Lord and not the idols of the culture? It means that you are investing your life in God's work, in the work that God is doing today. Does that mean you have to be a paid minister? No, because if everyone was a paid minister, then all of us who are paid ministers aren't going to be able to eat. So, no. Uh, But what it does mean, secondly, is that as you involve your, your life in the Lord's work, as you submit to God's direction, which means you know where God is going, you know what God wants to do, you know what God is preparing this world for, and you're investing it in that, that you don't worship money. 
that you don't love money. In Matthew 6, he says that. You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It's possible to serve God and have money, but you cannot love both. You can't be submitted to both. The difference between us and Israel as a church is that we're not called to isolate ourselves from the community. We're not called to isolate ourselves from non-believers. And some Christians do that, right? They only go to Christian doctors. They only go to Christian schools. They only go to Christian therapists. They only go to Christian this and Christian that, Christian mechanics. And they try to create the small community of where they're only interacting with Christians. And that's just not right. You're called to be excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Be salt and light. The church is different from Israel in its commission. We're called to go out, interact with the world. But you're not called to be like the world. We're called to worship God exclusively. It's not Jesus and this and this and that and that. It's Christ alone. And as you do that, in the same way that Joshua said, choose for yourselves. Christ is not going to micromanage your worship here. In other words, let's just say, let's just say hypothetically, you make a decision that was out of an ambition to further yourself and not the Lord. Lightning is not going to strike you, most likely. If you decide to go into a lifestyle of idolatry, you might still be alive for the next 40, 50 years. But you will have to face the consequences of that later. And so it is up to you to make whatever excuse you may want as to why you may be too busy or why it's too difficult to give your life to the Lord wholeheartedly. But the burden is on you. You choose. There's no micromanaging here. And so think as a person, you and me alike, everyone, and I came from a non-Christian family, so I understand this. Non-Christian in terms of our actual religious upbringing and non-Christian in terms of our philosophy. Again, I grew up in Las Vegas. <laughs> and L.A., which is even worse. Um, and San Jose, which is the worst. No. <laughs> uh, every person has some kind of relationship with the idolatrous world around you. You're either fighting it or you're befriending it. Where are you? Serve the Lord uprightly. Serve him exclusively. And finally, for our plaque verse, right? Serve God, serve the Lord resolutely. Joshua says, you choose, you choose. But, as for me, so now he puts himself in the spotlight. It's one of the only times he does this in the book. As for me, not just for me, but for my household. Again, Joshua has a limited jurisdiction. He can't control the spiritual lives of everybody in Israel. That's why there were elders, that's why there were priests, 
right? That's why there were officers. But Joshua says, for the people under my jurisdiction, all the members of my household, whoever they were and however many they were, we will serve the Lord. In other words, even if all of you, Israel, choose to serve other gods, either from your past or from your present, we, my household, we will serve the Lord and only the Lord. Every day, every month, every year, you, single or married, with a family, without a family, will have to make a choice. Are you going to give your life to the Lord or not? A lot of us are, I made up this term, uh, charcoal Christians. You burn when other ones burn around you. You go to Bible studies when everybody else goes around you. You go to shepherd's conferences when your friends go to shepherd's conferences. You listen to sermons and the same sermons that your friends listen to. You bring your kids to Sunday school when other families are bringing their kids to Sunday school. As a believer, obviously, you don't live in isolation. We live in a community. We encourage each other. We stimulate each other, which is why we have a Sunday service, right? We don't have a video projecting a sermon in each of your households. We ask, you get, we ask everyone to come and worship together, and we have a fellowship meal. But as a believer, you serve the Lord wholeheartedly no matter what is going on around you, no matter what everyone is doing. Embedded in your heart says, as for me and my house, with absolutely no compromise, we will serve the Lord. No matter what season of life, no matter what the present circumstances, whether we're at war, whether we're at peace, whether we have freedom, whether we have no freedom, whether we're given an education, whether we're not given an education, whether we're persecuted or not persecuted, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's it's particular here. When Joshua's speaking, you have to think that he's specifically charging the men, right? Men, are you leading your households in such a way that they are serving the Lord? Husbands and fathers, are you doing this now? Single men, are you preparing to do this? If I were to ask your wife, what is your husband truly after in life? What is he really ambitious about? If I were to ask her that without you there, what would she say? If I were to ask your children, who does your father love the most in life? What does he live for? What would they say? I I would hope, and I would hope the same for my wife and my kids, as although we're all sinners, that they would say, at the end of it all, he has committed his life to full service to the Lord. That's why he does what he does. And wives, if your husbands are not doing this, don't be like Sapphira, who just stands there while Ananias lies. Speak to them. Tell them. Nicely or harshly. (laughs) 
Honey, where are you going in life? Provided that they're not serving the Lord. As a man, you give an account for all of the activities and the endeavors that go on in your household. You may not be there all the time, but you give an account. And so can you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and live up to the plaque that's put on so many of the doorsteps now. Israel didn't do that. They did that all the wall while Joshua was alive. But then after that, you see in the book of Judges, they start serving the pagan gods. And then the kings come and they start serving the pagan gods again. They get conquered. There's a period of silence. She's in servitude to the surrounding nations. Christ comes, dies for the sins of the world, freed us from the bondage of idolatry. And now with sincerity and in truth, we are able to worship and serve God. That's the beauty of having the Holy Spirit indwelling in your heart permanently. You were an enemy of God at one point. You were an enemy of God at one point. Christ died for you, purchased you with his blood, right? He bought you. He redeemed you. That's what it means when he says he redeemed you. He didn't just save you from punishment. He bought you. He paid, he paid the price to have you be a people of his own possession. You are his treasured possession. And now we are called to fervently serve the Lord. It's a joy. Those who live, those who have Christ living in us, no longer live for ourselves, right? Second Corinthians 4. But for he who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. And in Hebrews 9.14, sprinkled clean, you were cleansed. Not so we could just sit there, but so we could serve God. And so the last charge is, although we live in a country where we do have more freedom than almost anybody else, don't forget that as a Christian, you are still redeemed, bought with a price, and you are not your own. And that is a privilege that you belong now to the creator as a treasured possession. And so live in such a way that reflects the reality of the redemption that costs someone a crucifixion. For you and your house, as for me and my house, Let us serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ who saves us, who saved us, many of us. We thank you that we're able to live for you, able to serve you. And I do pray that with sincerity and truth, that we would forsake all influences of idolatry, that we would forsake everything that lures us away from you and we would serve you wholeheartedly, that we would love you, that your Holy Spirit indwelling in us would cause us to walk in your truth day in, day out, and we would be faithful to you. And and we ask uh, for this to happen in our lives, uh, short-term, long-term, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.